Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. Increment 306, and we'll be focusing on Hebrews 9.23, beginning at 9.19, however, for context. This will be, in many ways, a continuation or even a kind of a second part, a B part, to Sunday's message, which was increment 305. And my objective in this message is to make another approach to the idea of the purification of the heavenly things themselves and therefore to focus on the better sacrifices that were needed for that purification, just what that means. And so we'll open with prayer and Father, I ask for the grace from your throne of grace and your mercy to help and your mercy to help me to make known the word of God in such a way that nothing is said that is separate from Jesus Christ and him crucified and that all that is said today will point to him and him alone so that we may all look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we ask that you'll bless each listener of this message and that you will gather twos and threes together and groups together to hear this message and others like it for it is these messages are created with the intention of fostering fellowship in the body of Christ and conversations that bring glory and honor to you father in Jesus name we pray amen <clears throat> my objective as I said in this message is to make another approach to the idea of the purification of the heavenly things themselves. It's an intriguing thing to think that things in the heavens need to be purified for one thing. It's always been a curious thing to me in the, as a reader of the scriptures. And we are going to entertain that today, but see where the true focus lies. In Hebrews 9.19, for context, for after articulating all the commandments of the law, Moses took the blood of bulls and goats with water and red wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll of the law and all the people while saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Likewise, in verse 21, he sprinkled, and this is, again, the word rantizo, which has to do with sprinkling of the blood. He sprinkled the tent and all the items used in cultic service with the blood. Moreover, according to that law, nearly everything is purified with blood. Notice that, purified with blood. In fact, without the pouring out of blood, there is a distinction here between the sprinkling and the pouring out as we've shown already in messages previous to this and in increments of Hebrews previous to this. In fact, without the pouring out of blood, there is no forgiveness. So the distinction that we've made is between the pouring out of blood, which relates to forgiveness, and the purification of the sprinkled blood, the sprinkled blood, which relates to purification. Same blood, two functions of the same blood. Moses sprinkled the blood of animal sacrifices <clears throat> prescribed by the law on the copies of the things in the heavens. That copies is the word H-U-P-O-D-E-I-G-M-A-T-A. Hupodigmata, hupodigmata, copies of heavenly things. Hupodigmata. And that means basically copies. Moses sprinkled the blood of animal sacrifices, 
those sacrifices prescribed by the law on the copies of the things in the heavens, meaning the tent, the tabernacle, the items of the tabernacle that were enumerated in Hebrews 9, 1 through 6. <clears throat> on the copies of the things in the heavens, when he sprinkled the tent and all the items used in cultic priestly service, and of course he also sprinkled all the people. I think that this is a depiction of all the people, meaning all the world, who will be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and who have been. In sprinkling the copies of the heavenly things, though, he did so with the blood <clears throat> of sacrifices. So now in this approach, this is Wednesday, September 20th, and this is increment 306. In this approach, the second approach after Sunday's first approach, I'll show the priority, first of all, of the heavens over the earth. <clears throat> the priority or the precedence of heavens over earth, which signifies in turn the priority of the things in the heavens over the mere copies of those things. I will do this, however, to show that what the author is after is not to primarily demonstrate the priority of the heavens over the earth or even the precedence of heavenly things themselves over the earthly copies of those things. But his purpose and focus is rather to show the superiority of the sacrifices, which we will show to be really the singular sacrifice, a superiority that is as high as the heavens above the earth, the superiority of the singular sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was needed to purify those heavenly things themselves. Now we've already shown that the writer's intention is not ultimately to show the precedence or priority of the heavenly over the earthly sphere. And there is that. Jesus even said to pray this way, and within that prayer he said, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a priority there of heaven because heaven has precedence in as much as it is from heaven that things that God does proceed. There is no ascending of the Son of Man until there is a descending first from heaven to earth. So there is that precedence of earth, of heavens over the earth, which is established in the scripture, but that's not the primary purpose of the homilist here to show that precedence, but he is simply using the precedence to show the heaven high over the earth superiority of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ over all, including the sum total of all, the animal sacrifices offered in the hundreds of years of history of the Levitical cultus. So I wanna say this again and do this carefully because really Sunday's message, and I rarely do this, but I was actually satisfied that Sunday's increment was a sufficient, for us at least, exegesis of that verse. But I want to approach it from a different way because I want to be a little more thorough. So in this second approach, I want to say this again, I'll show the priority of the heavens over the earth, which signifies in turn the priority of the things in the heavens over the mere copies of those things. But I'm gonna do this to show again that what the author is after is not primarily to demonstrate this priority of the heavens over the earth or even the precedence of heavenly things themselves over the earthly copies of those things, but rather to show the superiority of the sacrifices 
the better sacrifices than these, as it's called, which is really the singular sacrifice, a superiority that is as high as the heavens are above the earth, in other words, infinitely superior, of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was needed to purify those heavenly things themselves. In other words, as always, nothing is being communicated or known here by this author other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. We've already shown that the writer's intention is not ultimately to show the precedence or priority of the heavenly over the earthly sphere or even of heavenly things over earthly things, but to use that order of precedence to show the superiority of the sacrifices that would be required to purify the actual heavenly things over all the sacrifices that were needed and that were offered to purify the mere copies of the heavenly things. In this increment, then, I'm not merely taking another approach to the same conclusion, but I'm also doing it in another way to solidify the doctrine of the superiority of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of perfect love, the sacrifice that created sufficient satisfaction for the reconciliation of the world to God and, in fact, presented sufficient satisfaction for the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth, which will once and for all be brought together in Christ. So my approach is to show that indeed there is, in fact, a precedence or a priority of the heavens above the earth or over the earth according to scripture. And that this in turn points to the superiority of the sacrifices, i.e., that is the sacrifice that was required to purify the things in heaven of which the earthly tent and its furnishings and items were mere copies. The PT, the pastor teacher, is doing what Paul always did, knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's our number one rule of exegesis, of exposition, of theology, of teaching. Certain sacrifices were required to purify earthly copies of heavenly things. Real heavenly things are superior to earthly copies of those things. For the heavenly things, and this is the reasoning, for the heavenly things to be purified, better sacrifices than those, the animal sacrifices, required to purify the earthly things are required. That's the reasoning. The better sacrifices, however, are not many but one. The plural there is a categoric plural or a plural of class or a genre, and it refers to one, one, which is made more and more in the exposition that follows. It is that one sacrifice, and that sets the tone for the remainder of this central section in Hebrews. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself, who, like all priests, had to have something to offer, as Hebrews 5, 1 to 3 says. But unlike all other priests, he had himself and his own blood to offer. And he did offer himself and did pour out and sprinkle his own blood, as it were. In this present approach, I will be asking subsequent questions or subsidiary questions like one, do the heavens have precedence over the earth? And we've 
said they do, but now we're reflecting on that and asking the question onset, do they indeed? We'll also be asking, secondly, did the things in the heavens actually need to be purified? These are questions that go through the mind naturally when you read Hebrews 9.23. So again, I'll be asking two questions, subsidiary questions. Do the heavens have precedence over the earth, according to the scriptures? And did the things in the heavens actually need to be purified? It's a strange thing for us to think. We think of heaven, we think of heaven being an utterly pure place and not needing purification because it is the dwelling place of God. Well, earth is also his footstool, but earth needed purification. Our focal verse then, once again, Hebrews 9.23, now given the necessity that the copies of the things in the heavens, the copies of the things in the heavens, and as we go back to Hebrews 8.5, that, that's the tent Moses was shown a pattern in the heavens, as it were, for the copies on earth. And Moses sprinkled the blood on the copies of the things in the heaven to be purified. So given the necessity that the copies of the things in the heavens be purified, the heavenly things themselves, not the copies, but the things themselves, auta de ta epurania, the things, the heavenly things themselves, auta de ta epurania, but the heavenly things themselves needed to be, I put that in brackets, purified with better sacrifices, kratosin thusias, kratosin being a key word in Hebrews for meaning better. It's actually a comparative of the, of the verb or of the, the word agathos, the adjective agathos. Then these. Here it is again. Now, given the necessity of the copies of the things in the heaven be purified, the heavenly things themselves needed to be purified with better sacrifices than these. That is, better than the animal sacrifices which yielded the blood that Moses sprinkled on the earthly copies, the earthly tent and the items within the tent and the holy of holies that had to be sprinkled. To answer the first question, and that being the question, do the heavens have precedence over the earth? To answer that first question, we give the following. Yahweh created or made the heavens as well as the earth in Psalm 96, which is septed, the Septuagint 95.5. The English translation is usually 96.5. It says, for all the gods of the nations are demons, but the Lord, that's Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible, made the heavens. Please notice that the Lord made the heavens, tus uranus. Psalm 33, 6, which is in the Septuagint, 32, 6, by the word, now the Jewish Targums have, at least some manuscripts of the Jewish Targums have the word memra for word. We had a pretty extensive study of that word as the source of the word logos in John's gospel. In when we taught the fourth G, but it says, by the word of the Lord. Now, the word there, again, memra, evokes the meaning of the term logos for the eternal begotten Son of God. By the word, which we would say by the logos of the Lord, the heavens were made firm and by the spirit of his mouth, all their host. That's all the stars of the celestial heavens. But it's also all the angels of the paradisical heaven. Psalm 102.25, which is Septuagint 101.26, which itself is cited in Hebrews 1.10, says this, in the beginning, kata, Arkas, 
sort of like NRK Genesis 1.1. It's a title for Jesus Christ again in Colossians 1.18. So we confer with Genesis 1.1 where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens first and the earth second. It's the earth that became without form and void, meaning the earth is void without its connection to heaven, but we'll talk about that again. So Psalm 102.25, which is the Septuagint, Greek translation, 101.26, quoted in Hebrews 1.10, in the beginning, kat arkas, Lord, you founded, themeleao, the earth, founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands, hoi uranoi, the heavens are the work of your hands. The glory of the Lord, or the glory of God, however, is above both the heavens and the earth. So the point I want to make here is that both the heavens and the earth are part of the created sphere, not the uncreated sphere. Heaven is not uncreated. Heavens, the heavens are created just as the earth is created. So the earth has a significance to God as well as the heavens, but the heavens have a precedence as created reality over the earth, which is created reality, but the two form two halves of one created cosmos. Psalm 102.25 then, or 101.26, Septuagint, quoted in Hebrews 1.10, in the beginning, Lord... We could even say, in Christ, Father, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. But the glory of God is above and has precedence over both the heavens and the earth, for God is creator and therefore uncreated reality. And both the heavens and the earth are the creature, or by that I mean created reality. Psalm 57, 5, which is the Septuagint of 56, 6. Be lifted up, God, over the heavens and your glory above all the earth. We see the heavens there with precedence over the earth, but we see God with precedence over the heavens and the earth. Our theme for Hebrews is we see Jesus crowned with glory. He is God lifted up over the heavens and the earth. We see him having ascended high above all the heavens, huper ano panton, we'll see in print, huper ano panton, ton uranon, ascended high above all the heavens in order to make everything full that is, to fill up everything in earth and in the heavens with himself, in Ephesians 4.10. So he descended to the lower parts of the earth and ascended to above the heavens that he might fill up all things with himself and therefore fulfill the reason for the creation of the heavens and the earth with their redemption. How about 1 Kings 8.27? which is the Septuagint of a book called Three Reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S. 1 Kings 8.27, Three Reigns in the Septuagint. This is Solomon's prayer during the dedication of the first temple, not the second temple, which was destroyed in A.D. 70, but the first temple, which was destroyed in A.D. or in B.C. 586. Solomon's prayer during the dedication of the first temple was this, but will God truly dwell with men, meta men, on the earth? And if the heaven of the heavens will not suffice for you, then how much less this house that I built for your name? Please notice here that even the heavens of the heavens will not suffice for God, that is to contain him contain his glory, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his essence. 
even if the heaven of heavens will not suffice for you, then how much less this house, a house that he built on earth for God's name. Job 26 says that the pillars of heaven tremble and are horror struck at your rebuke, speaking to God. The pillars of heaven tremble. What I'm showing here is that even though heaven has precedence over the earth, even the pillars of heaven tremble at God's rebuke, at the rebuke of God who is higher in glory infinitely than the heavens and the earth. Job 15.15, a very intriguing verse, says God doesn't have ultimate trust in his holy ones. And that's, of course, very true. His holy ones are his saints, or it can be angels. God doesn't have ultimate trust in his holy ones. That's got to be true, because his holy ones ought to have ultimate trust in God, not the other way around. But then the second half of this verse is even more intriguing in Job 15.15b, and even heaven is not pure in his sight. Even heaven is not pure in his sight. U katharos, u katharos, not purified in his sight. Now, given, as we say, consider the source, a lot of the things said in Job were said by idiots who were trying to rebuke Job by self-righteous ways, but this does bring about a truth here. Even heaven is not pure in his sight means that heaven itself being of the creaturely sphere is prone to be contaminated as earth would be. They are of the creature, they are of the sphere, the circle of being that is created, not uncreated. God is the only being that is pure in himself and uncontaminatable, as we could say. So when God in Christ was judged for us, that is a, a reality that just cannot be conceived or imagined, and it's stunning to say the least. How about Revelation 20, verse 11? I saw an enormous gleaming white throne and one seated on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled, and no place was found for them. The idea here again is the stunning glory of God, distinct from the earth as well as the heaven, because the heaven and the earth are both the sphere of the creature, the, cre the created reality. No place was found for them. That means between... There is no comparison between the creator and the created spheres. Heaven and earth will flee from the presence of God is a poetic way, an apocalyptic genre way of saying that God is an incomparable being and that heavens and earth can't compare to him. Now here's the key verse for our consideration in the first part of this message. Isaiah 55.9, familiar to us all, probably, if we've read the scriptures for more than a couple of years. For the heaven is distant from the earth. For as heaven is distant from the earth, and the sense there means higher than earth, or has precedence over earth, so my ways are distant from implying superior to your ways. God is speaking in this one. And my thoughts, then your thoughts. So for as heaven is distant from or higher than earth, there it is right there explicitly stated that the heavens have precedence over the earth. So my ways are distant from or this implication is here superior to your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. One of the ways of God, or we consider, is that he would justify all mankind by his own faithfulness in Jesus Christ. Our way would be, no, we would be justified by our own faith. Well, as high as the heaven is above the earth is God's thought and God's way. 
which is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who is the way, <clears throat> the truth, and the life, which is far above our thoughts, which is the thought of Adam, the first man, that we would be justified by our own faith, which is wrong. Psalm 73.25 says this, and this is also intriguing. It's the Septuagint of 72.25a. <clears throat> Whom do I have in heaven but you? And what have I desired on earth but you? The idea in the first half of this verse is that the oppressed psalmist, he is a writer who is under oppression, has no consolation even in heaven. If you were thrust into heaven right now, that would not fulfill you, but only God in heaven and God above heaven. So the idea in the first half of this verse is profound because it's the oppressed psalmist has realized that he has no consolation even in heaven, but only in God. The point of all these verses cited above then is twofold. One, heavens are part of created reality and are the upper half of the whole cosmos. And two, the heavens have precedence over the earth. So we've answered the questions we began with. My purpose in referring to these verses in the sacred text is first to show that heaven or the heavens, as well as earth, is part of created reality as opposed to the uncreated reality of God, the creator. Heaven, like earth, is, to use Barth's phrase, the sphere of the creature. Secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, my purpose is also to show that as is especially apparent from Isaiah 55, 9, as Deutero Isaiah begins to close, the heavens are superior to the earth. So in answer to the question, did the things in the heavens themselves need to be purified, we say that even though the heavens are superior to the earth, the heavens and the earth are parts of a cosmic whole, W-H-O-L-E, and are subject to and indeed have been in need of purification. Now, it says in Romans 5.12, even more tellingly, that sin entered the world through one man. Now, this has to do with anthropology, not angelology. We're talking about human sin affecting the heavens, not angelic sin. And we were talking about this, Pastor Stewart and I, briefly after service on Sunday. We were considering whether angelic sin is the reason for the contamination of the heavens. And I, said, I sort of said maybe that's true, but it isn't. <clears throat> it's human sin alone that made the heavens impure. The angels are not de being dealt with in this. And the angelic conflict is not in this. The sin of Satan and the fallen angels, etc. And angelology is largely misunderstood and it's a very difficult subject. And it is one that is misunderstood and we are often misled in our consideration of angelology, of who Satan is, who demons are, etc. That has to be clarified. And I hope I have time to do that. The sin of man alone caused the heavens to be contaminated. It has nothing to do with angels. For one, by one man, sin entered into the cosmos. Now, the cosmos as a whole is the heavens and the earth. Sin entered into the cosmos. The cosmos has two halves to make a whole, and the halves include the heavens and the earth. So sin entered into the whole cosmos, and with it, death. And so there had to be a purification of the cosmos that include the earth and the heavens, see, by that reasoning. So in answer to the question, did the things in the, in the heavens themselves needed, need to be purified? And we say that even though the heavens are superior to the earth, however, 
The heavens and the earth are parts of a cosmic whole and are subject to and indeed have been in need of purification. The implication of the heavens being impure in God's sight or not pure in God's sight, Job 15, 15, and having need of purification mean that, means that sins and sin, singular, have had an effect beyond the sinner, the sinful actor or the evildoer. Our sins have an effect beyond the act of our sin, beyond ourselves. We often say, well, if it doesn't hurt somebody else, we can do it, even though it's sin. But every sin hurts everybody else. We have no idea. Beyond even the community of the sinner, and it's a contaminating effect that reaches even beyond the earthly to the heavenly spheres of creaturely being. Now, again, what I'm doing here is making a second approach to the idea that what the homilist is after here is the superiority of the once and for all, unrepeatable, definitive and final sacrifice of Jesus Christ, a satisfaction of perfect love. I'm not talking here, we're not talking about this the heavens themselves and their superiority over the earth primarily. But we are talking about the superiority of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ over the sacrifices offered in the Old Testament, which again serves the pastoral purpose of why should you guys, to whom he's writing, go back to the inferior sacrifices of offered in the Judaistic system, which were at the time proper, but are no longer proper and only now are meaninglessly redundant since the once and for all sacrifice has been offered. Furthermore, don't say you're going back there for the alleviation of your consciousness or your conscience from sin because the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkles under the purification of the consciousness completely, whereas those sacrifices only did it partially and with an anticipation of a complete purgation, which only happens in Christ. There's no reason to retreat or to revert. There's no reason for reversionism back into Judaism for these Christians or for Christians today for that matter. And so, once again, did the things in the heavens need to be purified? The answer is yes. The implication being that the heavens are not pure in God's sight, meaning that the heavens are not beyond being contaminated. Only God is beyond being contaminated. So when we see that Jesus became sin for us, that's so astonishing as to be almost impossible to describe and can only evoke and carry us across the threshold of worship. All the sins of man, every one of our individual sins, goes even beyond the sinner, even beyond the community of the sinner, a contaminating effect that reaches even beyond the earthly to the heavenly spheres of creaturely being is the astonishing implication. Consider what God said to his friend Abraham. He said to Abraham, shall I hide from Abraham that which I am about to do? A friend tells a friend his purpose. He gives his intimate thoughts to his friend. God considered Abraham his friend, and so he said, shall I withhold from Abraham what I'm about to do? I'll tell you what I'm about to do. I'm going down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is what he said in Genesis 18:20. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah has multiplied, and their sin, hamartia, is so exceedingly immense, verse 21, that I'm going down to see for myself if what they've done justifies the cry that has come up to me. 
If not, I will find out. Of course, Yahweh himself came down and did so with two terminating angels, and they were they went to Abraham's tent. Abraham entertained them. Sometimes we don't know we're entertaining angels. Sometimes we may not know we're entertaining Yahweh, our Lord Jesus Christ. Please notice that the cry has come up to me. Where is God? He dwells in the heavens. The heavens are his throne. The earth is his footrest. The sin was so great that the outcry of it came up to heaven, reached heaven. Does the heaven need to be purified? Yes, it needs to be purified from the outcry and from the what is called by one scholar the aerial miasma, the mist of sin that goes into the heavens. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was so immense that the outcry concerning it reached God in heaven. Now, leaping from Genesis to Revelation, consider Babylon, another notorious place, or apostate Jerusalem, pre-AD 70. The whore Babylon, the murderess of the prophets. John the Apocalypticist wrote in Revelation 18, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins, tes hamartias, or receive any of her plagues. For her sins, he hamartia, are a sticky mass reaching up to heaven. Do the heavens need to be purified? In that sense, according to the apocalypticists, they do. According to the homilists, they do. And according to Yahweh, the outcry can reach heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. These passages from each end of the sacred text reveal that sin and sins have an effect even in the heavens. Consequently, the purification of the heavens is not such a foreign concept to the writers of scripture. That the heavens are seen as superior to the earth in terms of the chosen dwelling and headquarters of God from which his actions proceed and the pastor teacher that wrote Hebrews saying that the heavens require purification is not so far from reason or from revelation. On top of this, we've already considered the correspondence of the heavens with the human consciousness. That's another thing. Hebrews 9.23 hooking up back with 9.14. The correspondence of the heavens and the purification of the things in the heavens with the human consciousness and the decisive purgation of the human consciousness. And so we've considered the correspondence then of the heavens with the human consciousness and consequently the correspondence of the purification of the heavens with the complete and perpetual purification of the consciousness of sins. The superiority of the heavens over the earth sets up the argument for the superiority of the sacrifices required to purify the heavens than the sacrifices required to purify the earthly tent and the implements of cultic service of the earthly priests. Better sacrifices, plural, is one sacrifice. <clears throat> this is the point the PT and, more importantly, the Holy Spirit is making, as we've indicated in Increment 305. The author is zooming in, not on the curious fact, and it is curious, of the need of purification even of heavenly things, 
nor is he zooming in, we see Jesus zooming in, on the superiority of the heavens over the earth, primarily. Nor is he zooming in even on the heavenly things themselves over the copies of those things, their precedence over. He is zooming in, with a zoom lens as it were, on the superiority of the once and for all and forever, unrepeatable, definitive sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which we know not only achieved satisfaction for all the sins of Israel, but for all the sins of the world, achieved the reconciliation of the world to God, and wider than that, the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ by the blood of his cross. Blood that is both poured out for forgiveness of all sins and sprinkled for the purification of the whole cosmos and the consciousness of all human beings of all places and times. Now, as a kind of an addendum here, it's fascinating what commentators have said about this verse, specifically about the purification of the things in the heavens. The Cambridge Commentary, Bible Commentary, which is an excellent commentary, incidentally, but in this case interprets this by a figure of speech called zugma, since we're dealing with Z-O-O -O sounds, Zugma, but it's spelled this way, Zugma, Z-E-U-G-M-A, but it's pronounced Zugma. It's the Cambridge commentary interprets this thing by a, a figure of speech called Zugma by which the verb purified passes into the sense of dedicated. So what they mean is, what they say this means is that purification of the heavens means the dedication of the heavens by zugma, by a figure of speech called zugma. Ellicott reasons similarly that the heavenly things are not in fact defiled by sin, he said, suggesting that the meaning intended here is that the true heavenly sanctuary cannot be entered by man the new fellowship between God and man in heavenly places cannot be inaugurated till the heavenly things themselves have been brought into association with the one atoning sacrifice for man. So both Ellicott, also a wonderful commentator, and the Cambridge Commentary seems to agree that dedication or inauguration is in view here rather than purification. I don't agree with that, incidentally, not that my opinion matters that much, but they both recognized the zugma in that sense then. Alford, A-L-F-O-R-D, on the other hand, rejects zugma, that that zugma is being used here as a figure of speech, and he says rather, quote, or at least I think I'm quoting, I may be paraphrasing, he said, the heavenly tabernacle, that is, the place of God's revealing of his majesty and grace for angels and men, needed a catharisestai. Catharisestai means a purification. He doesn't say it means dedication or inauguration. And then he says it needed a purification insofar as men, men, not angels, had rendered this place which was destined for them from the beginning, unapproachable by reason of their sin. And I think that's much closer to the reality here and to the right interpretation. And so it must be changed into an approachable place of manifestation of a God gracious. And so of sacrifices that were needed for purification. He then shows, Alfred does, that the plural for sacrifices is called the categoric plural of an abstract proposition. Again, this is an addendum because there's a lot of technicalities in here that you don't really need to consider, but they're interesting. 
He shows that the plural for sacrifice is the categoric plural for an abstract proposition, and that simply means that it doesn't imply the sacrifice was repeated by saying needed better sacrifices. But it means it refers only to the one sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all, and most emphatically designating that as a sacrifice better than these. So the very term better sacrifices, plural, were needed is fulfilled in the category of one single sacrifice. The plural of sacrifices in the phrase better sacrifices than these, the name of increment 305's title that is, is used generically to express a class, says the writer. So the Hebrews writer is alluding not to zugma, but he's zooming in on one transcendent sacrifice, which alone is sufficient to bring about homardiological amnesia in God. That's not what Alfred is saying. It's what other sources have said, including, I think, Bluer calls it sacrificial amnesia in God and in all the worshipers of God. I like to call it homardiological amnesia because it's a forgetfulness of sins, which is the concept that brackets the whole central section of Hebrews, 8, 12, 10, 17. Forgetfulness of sins. We have much more to say about that. So God said, in effect, we need better sacrifices for this, the purification of the things themselves in heaven. And then he said, okay, how about this one sacrifice? And Jesus said, I'll be it. I will be it. Here I am. Send me. So the one sacrifice becomes the clear and present focus from here on into nine 24, 25, 26, all the way through 10, 18, where there's forgiveness of these, there's no more sacrifice, all the way to 10, 18. So you see what we've done here? We've set the tone and the theme for the rest of the central expositional section. So I'll close increment 306 simply by reiterating what I said at the beginning of increment 305, I-305. The Hebrews homilist alludes to the heavenly things themselves here, not so much to demonstrate the priority of the heavens over the earth, but to show the preeminence of Messiah Jesus once and for all and forever sacrifice over all the countless sacrifices offered under the law. The once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ brought about not only the reconciliation of man to God, but it brought about the reconciliation of all things, things in the heaven and things on earth, together in Christ. Ephesians 1.10, Colossians 1.20. We thank you, Father, for making these verses clear to us, and we hope that our meditations of our heart and the words of my mouth in this has been acceptable to you. It's impossible for us to do an entirely satisfactory exegesis of this wonderful homily. But may this suffice for now to edify your church and to build up the body of Christ and to evoke worship and evoke conversations that are acceptable in your hearing and actions that are acceptable in your sight. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.